They told me I use my mouth good. So I started a podcast. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And that, my friends, is rule six of Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. Woo-wee! Oh, this is like, this was a fun chapter for me to read um, because, God, wow, like, just the premise of this whole one is... I'm such an opposition to already, so I was really fired up to do it because this might be my least favorite rule. So I know there's there's a few more rules to go, but this one, this one's real rich because the premise is messed up for a lot of reasons, mostly because of the assumptions it makes. So I'm just gonna just gonna dive right into this one because. Uh, Oh man, there's a lot, there's a lot to go through here. And he really, uh, he really, he really shows himself a lot in this chapter. And I think it's a good thing because, again, my whole point has been, what is Jordan Peterson's agenda with this book? Because it's not some, you know, it's not just a self-help book. Like if it was just a self-help book, that would be fine. But what this actually is is self-help with a lot of ideology that he just tries to ram down your throat. So he starts off rule number six, talking about a religious problem, or in his perspective, a lack of religion is kind of a big problem in why the world is so fucked up. Um, You know, despite the fact that I would say probably over what like 90% of people in the world believe in some kind of religion and those religions have been used to justify all sorts of murderous behavior but let's not focus on the um millions and tens of millions of people who were killed 
by religion. Let's focus on Jordan Peterson's example that he gives in the very first few paragraphs. And he is talking about, he starts off talking about the Sandy Hook shooting and also the Columbine shooting, which school shootings are horrifying and it really, they really are a reflection of the kind of chaos you can find yourself in in the world. But he tries to make it a religion or a lack of religion thing. And so he goes through quoting some of the Columbine kids who were really like awful little shitlords. I mean, th- these are kids who, I, you know, I guess they encountered some type of bullying, but basically they're little sociopathic shitheads who wanted to kill a bunch of people for a lot of reasons. They gave a whole list of reasons. If you care to read the rantings and ra- ravings of uninteresting teenagers, go ahead and do that. He certainly did. Um, and he's talking about how even things like Nazism was, you know, linked to, I guess, this lack of belief, like the the whole Nazis. I, I hate this. Like, he goes Godwin's Law, like, within the first few paragraphs of this chapter, which is a really annoying thing that a lot of people do. I think everyone does the Godwin's Law, like oh, you're Hitler immediately. Uh, everything's Everyone I disagree with is a Nazi. A lot of people have problems with that. But conservatives, I think, are especially quick to make that association, despite the fact that Germany at the time of uh, Nazism was a fairly Christian country. It wasn't um, a lack of religion that led to these the atrocities of concentration camps, but uh, a utter hatred for humanity and a perhaps sincere belief that they were trying to make humanity better. Um, But as far as like the religious aspects of Nazism and communism, this is a very, God, it's so annoying. It's, It's so frustrating when you see people blaming like the extreme minority of non-believers for these like massive atrocities. So, and he's talking in general about the cynicism of non-religious people and this is i'll start with the first quote for such individuals the world of experience is insufficient and evil so to hell with everything and this is a critique of nihilism basically because he makes the connection that if you are a nihilist of some kind or you know some kind of other non-believer that your belief systems will inherently lead you to devaluing human life you know Unlike religions that say that human beings are born, you know, inherently depraved, you know, shout out to Calvinism and other forms of Protestantism that believe that you're born basically a little piece of shit and you have to be forced to be a good person through discipline and belief in God and all of these other things. So, uh, you know, supposedly these nihilists that are ruining everything exist. I haven't met a whole lot of them. But, uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure they're out there because Jordan Peterson says they're out there. So this is, first off, a really uncharitable take on nihilists because not every nihilist is anti-civilization and anti-human thriving and and all that. Um, And to say that to use the example of school shooters as nihilists is just extremely dishonest. Like these were murderers. Like they would have been murderers regardless of their 
belief system or lack of belief system. You know, there are many, many more examples to choose from when talking about murderers and like can ideology be linked to certain anti-human thriving beliefs and all of that. And there's there's so many more examples of Christians committing atrocities too in the name of Christ or, you know, what the fuck ever. So uh so it, the leaps here start super early. So he's already connected nihilism and school shooters within the first few paragraphs, which is for for even religious people. And by the way, I do have a lot of friends who are religious and spiritual in some kind of way. I think even for religious people, this is such a leap. Like this is a huge stretch to say, okay, people who believe differently than I do or lack the same belief system are inherently bad people. It's really shitty. It's a shitty thing to do, because maybe he's not a great person, but I've already gone over that in other podcasts. <laughs> so he immediately starts off being really dishonest in this chapter. Like, he doesn't even try. He Like, he it was very, this is a very, um, this chapter's really lazy. I, I think a lot lazier than the other chapters I've gone into. I mean, he really just went hook, line, and sinker for what he knew conservatives would react to. This is a very old argument, by the way. I've been hearing conservatives making this argument since I was a child. And, uh, it, you know, it never really, never really took for me because uh, despite my skepticism about religion and all that, I've never really had a problem with, you know, devaluing the humanness of my fellow man or anything like that. I don't know. Like, I've always... Uh, been pretty uh pro-human thriving like more people should have access to better lives and I, I don't see why that's such a problem um but i don't have my house in perfect order so why the fuck am i saying anything about anything well why don't we just kind of continue on he goes into a little bit of um he starts talking about tolstoy and tolstoy's struggles with belief and lack of belief faith you know he uh and again like Tolstoy is a giant like this is a man who was very reflective about his beliefs and you know a lot of religious people I've met are pretty similar like they've taken great care and really thinking about their beliefs and trying to figure out you know how to cope with these feelings of doubt or threats to their faith all of that and it's fine because these are huge questions, and I don't know. My whole belief in religions or my lack of belief in religions that can be a whole other giant topic for another time. Um, but in my limited experience living on this earth, people the people who are good and respect each other and value human thriving will do that regardless of what they believe and the people who don't won't regardless of what they believe so professed ideology isn't always you know indicative of your character you know like i i, I don't care what people call themselves i care about how they treat people and i think that's pretty consistent so he's he's talking about Tulsa's uh questioning his own faith and um you know he kind of goes into 
you know, some of the struggles other other people have faced and the idea of or, or the question of how can a person who is awake avoid outrage at the world? And so he directly starts making, you know, he directly starts attacking this kind of premise and he starts talking about people who have been abused, who go on to harm others and the question of forgiveness. So how does forgiveness or vengeance come into play when you have been so disastrously harmed, when your life has been ruined by other people? He asks the question, after the experience of terrible atrocity, isn't forgiveness just cowardice or lack of willpower? To which I have a note saying, well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes you just want to lash out at everyone else and indiscriminately hurt people because you've been hurt. That is a portion of people who survive atrocities and abuse. And you know what? It's fine to not forgive people. It's not fine to hurt people. It's not fine to like try to intentionally harm other people. And a lot of times if you've been harmed or if you're suffering from the side effects of trauma, you may hurt other people unintentionally, you know, and that's something that if if you are able to get therapy or if you're able to get through that, you should certainly try to get into those programs and get into a place where you're not, you know, harming the people around you. But the the topic of forgiveness, he's trying to appeal to this kind of moral outrage people have when people are wronged and the legitimacy of that outrage. Now, he's going to go on later to say, well, you can turn it around and you can, you know, make lemons out of lemonade kind of thing. But it's not a dichotomy. It's not like you have to forgive people who've harmed you always or you can never forgive them and just be focused on vengeance. You know, he asks that question and he says, such questions torment me. I mean, it's a case-by-case situation for me. You don't have to forgive people who've harmed you. You're not, they don't, they're not owed forgiveness. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to heal from it. But if forgiveness gives you any sense of self-healing, that's fine. You know, if it, if it makes you feel better that you have to forgive someone for what they did, then that's fine. Of course, do that. But to to call someone, you know, angry or bitter or resentful because they don't forgive someone is really reductive. It doesn't really take into context what else has gone on in that situation. And a lot of times, like, people have gone through trauma. Like, you're not going to get the full details of what they really went through. And honestly, it's up to them to disclose how much they're going through. But we we often don't know, even in more public stories about trauma and stuff like that. We don't actually know the nitty-gritty details and how much harm someone has caused. Someone who hurts other people is not entitled to forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't some magical thing that... It's not like you just wave a wand and all of a sudden things didn't happen and you're not impacted by those um, issues anymore. Maybe that works in some ways for some people and that's fine if it does, but... No one's owed forgiveness, and you don't have to forgive someone to heal from the trauma that they've put on you through their actions. So, I don't know, that's not a question that really torments me, um, but 
you know, he goes on to, to describe more murders and stuff and then clients that he had who went on to better their lives and had, you know, even though they experienced extreme trauma, were able to set a better path for themselves. He specifically talks about a client of his who did not have good parents. And she was, you know, raised by her grandmother who was who mistreated her and uh, her father, who was an addict. Her mother passed away early on and she ended up having a son and she did not put she did not perpetuate any of the abuse that she went through on her son. He goes, instead of widening the tear in the cultural fabric she inherited and transmitting it, she sewed it up. She rejected the sins of her forefathers. Such things can be done. Well, Jordan, no one's arguing that they can't. <laughs> no no one's like, I, I just don't understand the, the case he's even making because he's railing. Like, I skipped a whole lot of him just railing against things for a while, like railing. And again, dishonestly connecting this idea of skepticism or nihilism to some kind of anti-human, anti-life actions. And no, like people... People treat people badly if they're shitty. And he says specifically that this woman improved her life by basically, you know, sewing up the cultural fabric that she inherited is the way that he put it. Now she came from an abusive parental background. But what did those things stem from? You know, like what, what, you know, can we examine the cultural influences that cause these types of situations? You know, that's, that's totally healthy to do. And a lot of people have gone through this kind of trauma and they exist and they get through it. But to really thrive, throwing off the cultural fabric of social conservatism is required because ideology affects culture. And he's making the same point here that I'm making, but just reverse. He's trying to say, oh, well, you know, bad things happen and people become nihilists and that makes them worse people because of ideology. Okay, well, let's run with that specific premise and apply it to what his professed ideology is and maybe not explicitly professed because if you actually listen to him in interviews, he's very back and forth about what he actually believes re religious wise. Um, you know, despite the fact that he's done these very in-depth um, videos about the Bible and stuff like that. He's some version of Christian, but, you know, he wants to make all these arguments against other ideologies, but he doesn't want to, you know, get pinned down too much. <laughs> but it's true. Ideology affects culture. And when violent behaviors are normalized, there are a lot more damaged people as a result. Yeah, like why make life more suffering than it needs to be by adding shame and guilt to the equation. Everyone has a choice in the way that they raise their children, as this woman did. So this goes back to the question of the last chapter, how do we raise future generations? Well, we could start by not giving them so much cultural baggage to sort through in the first place. So whenever people are faced with problems in their family yet yeah, that is a very specific problem but where do those kinds of problems come from like is there a broader problem of culture and ideology that makes people feel responsible for the abuse that they've suffered now what ideologies would 
or religions would put that idea into people's heads? Well, I think you really have to closely examine the tenets of social conservatism and uh, Judeo-Christian religions because there is a whole lot of self-blaming and, you know, allowing for abuse. There's, there's a whole lot of, you know, proponents of child abuse on this side of things. Um, you know, it's really the whole idea that you're born morally depraved and a bad person in certain types of Christian belief systems is all you're already starting off on the losing end of things you know if, if you're taught as a young child even if you live in a healthy supportive environment with parents who love you if you're taught that you're morally depraved and you're basically um you know you're you're an evil bad person unless you accept this savior into your life then does that really set you up for a lot of good intentions, a lot of good outcomes in your life? I don't think it does. Are there ways to teach Christianity to people and children in loving, wholesome kinds of ways? Possibly, maybe, but I think you have to ignore what the Bible actually says to do that. And um, when he's talking about vengeance, he's trying to make a basically contrast here between people who've been wronged who seek out vengeance and retribution and people who refuse to bow to that and instead you know just do good in their lives and don't seek it out um as if there's one as if you have to choose one or the other there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting justice he calls it vengeance but if you use different words no one's opposed to justice you know, like, it's one thing if you're, you know, just hurting people indiscriminately because you've been hurt and stuff like that, and you're, you just want to cause as much destruction as possible. I don't really think that's as common as people who've been wronged wanting a sense of justice for what they faced, wanting the people who have harmed them to be brought into accountability. You know, like I, there's not that's healthy. I think it's healthy. I, I think there it can be very unhealthy to just say, well, I'm just going to forgive everyone and just try to kind of move on without really resolving things. You know, everyone has their own battles to pick. Regardless of whether or not you're religious or not, if he's going to make the connection between nihilism and harming people, then I, I think it kind of. It can't not be mentioned the harm that Christianity has caused people, the serious long standing, not just in terms of, you know, murdering people and colonizing their lands and doing all of that, but just the emotional damage that's caused from having and having a religious belief based on certain premises. And if you read the Bible, it gets interesting because he, he comes out very much against vengeance, very much, you know, very much against any kind of basically, you know, punching back at anyone who may have harmed you. But uh, and this can kind of come from maybe a Christian belief in, you know, vengeance isn't for you. Vengeance is for the Lord. But this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because we have the Lord who is this kind of, you know, 
being that exists that we just have to have faith and believe in and all of that. And they're allowed to enact vengeance on everyone else. They're allowed to kill hundreds and thousands of people for disbelief and for, you know, seemingly increasingly petty things. <laughs> if you actually read the Old Testament, the the um, reasons even given in the Bible for God just up and killing mass amounts of people are, you know, lack of belief, um, all of these things. They're, they're, but they're increasing, they're somewhat arbitrary kinds of reasons. So if we're going to attack belief systems and we're going to talk about where belief systems lead to, then you have to take into account his own belief systems, his own religion. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's okay for the Lord to take vengeance. It's okay for the Lord to kill indiscriminately, apparently. And I don't want to sound all, like, neckbeard atheist about this stuff. I mean, you know, I'm salty about religion, but, like, I don't want to go too far into, you know, <laughs> into that territory. Like, I, you know, people can believe what they want to. Ultimately, it comes down to how they treat people. If you can be a Christian and truly believe in these premises and not treat people in the logically consistent way in which these premises, you know, follow, then that's fine. Good for you. And I also don't expect any kind of consistency with people. Like, I don't expect everyone to be ideologically consistent. And I've said this before on the podcast. Like, I don't think anyone's ideologically consistent, but I think your values can be tested. And in certain situations, you can prove consistency, of course. But... You know, people are fairly inconsistent with what they believe. But I think it's important that if someone is saying that ideology and belief systems lead to certain modes of, you know, certain types of abuse, certain types of uh, degra degradation to society, you know, the Western, Western civilization is being ruined because of like, feminism or what the fuck ever then it's important to look at the people making that claim. What do they actually believe? What, what premises are they operating from? So that's why I'm deconstructing this whole thing because he's going hard on the nihilism thing, which we don't really see a whole lot of on a widespread basis. And the, the behaviors that he's connecting to it are behaviors done by shitty people who, and there are, by the way, a lot more christian identified people doing violence in the world so it, it's one of those arguments that like is kind of bizarre to even be making because it's just really not supported by any statistical data but let's not let that get in the way of a good self-help book one thing he is right about that i wanted to highlight and i, I you know highlighted it in my little i agree because you know i i'm i try to find something in every chapter i can agree with and he he does say, finally, after listing a lot of examples of, you know, abusive people and things like that, however, the majority of people who were abused as children do not abuse their own children. Um, that's right. And that should be shouted from the rooftops because I think it helps end stigmas against abused people. You've heard the probably heard the phrase hurt people hurt people and i don't completely disagree with that but 
when it comes to being abused, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't turn all people into monsters. In fact, it doesn't turn most people into monsters. And it's why I get really salty about when people say when people try to excuse someone's predatory behavior by the fact that they were preyed on as children or something like that. I, I hate that argument so much. Oh, God. It's like, yeah, hurt people hurt people. But guess what? Not everyone becomes the monsters that, you know, from the abuse that they were subjected to. Most people don't. Most people find a way to keep their heads up and move on with their lives and move forward. So that's great. And that's kind of, I mean, he's trying to kind of say that in this in this chapter but he's making this weird ideological connection that's just not supported but he can't even be consistent with his own premise so later on he speaks of alexander solzhenitsyn who wrote the gulag archipelago which is a hugely critical book on communism basically. And he was someone who lived in the gulags, who was forced into the gulags. I wouldn't say lived in the gulags, by the way. I'm anti-communist too. I'm not just anti-fascist. It's uh, a history of, you know, the Soviet prison camps that he was in. And it was banned from the Soviet Union. And he, he risked his life to get this book out. And it was fiercely critical of the ideology of communism. I mean, how how could it not be considering he lived through the gulags? So, but the way he says it, the way, so Jordan Peterson goes, one man's decision to change his life instead of cursing fate shook the whole pathological system of communist tyranny to its core. So, wait a second. Was his house in perfect order before he attacked communism and wrote the gulag archipelago? <laughs> like, wait, What? So here's, and this is true, by the, by the way, like, this is someone who's, who's making the case, like, set your life in perfect order before going out and criticizing the world. But if, if he wanted us to do that, there would be no writers. You know, we, we want these ideas to be attacked and we want these things to get out there. You need people to be writing about them for that to happen. And I don't know if you know a lot of writers, but they're not always the most have their shit together kind of people as are a lot of creative types. Like, if, if you want, you know, set your house in order before you criticize the world, there would be no art if that was the case. <laughs> like, what kind of world does he want to live in where, where everyone just, you know, becomes these little perfect automatons, like, in their in their personal lives, and then once they're all, they've reached, you know, the fucking eighth stage of enlightenment or what the fuck ever, they, they write a book about it. Because I fixed my life and so can you. Okay. No, like, people don't have to be perfect. People don't have to have their shit together to be right about the way that society has treated them. And by the way, it was a critique on society, too. I mean, it was a critique of communism, but he very harshly attacked you know, society's certain principles, certain values and ideologies that, you know, support that and the idea of gulags in the first place, which, by the way, it's not an idea that's specific to communism by any stretch. So people need to get that out of their heads. I mean, you know, the idea of prison camps for people has been used by every single type of, you know, ideological system just about. 
and they've justified it in various ways. The United States, in turn, um, a bunch of Japanese American citizens. I'm like, there's so many examples of this. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, yeah, he did make the decision to change his life. Did he get his life in perfect order before writing this foundational book attacking communism? I don't know. We don't. <laughs> I don't know. So <laughs> he just kind of undermines his whole premise with that story. Okay, gonna move on. This is kind of a short chapter. So he goes on to talk about things outside of our control, not just dealing with people, but things like natural disasters. So he talks about how when the hurricane hit New Orleans and the town was destroyed. And so, okay, I lived nearby New Orleans uh, when the hurricane, when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I lived in that area, which is known for having a lot of hurricanes and natural disasters or one of those chaotic, oh my God, how could this possibly have happened kinds of things. It comes out of nowhere. There's sometimes very little time to prepare and it can totally ruin your life. It can totally destroy everything you worked for. And that happened to a lot of people in New Orleans. And he's talking about, you know, why it happened. And he says, willful blindness and corruption took the city down. So, yeah, wait a second. Um, that seems like a societal attack, right? Like, that seems like something wrong to criticize with the world. Now, do you have to have your, your life in perfect order before, you know, admitting that the government hates poor people? No. Um, <laughs> why, was, why was New Orleans so neglected? Why, why was there such willful blindness and corruption? You know, what about that government made it so bad? And here's the thing. You can't separate the causes of racism and classism in this area of the country. There are human causes to be outraged about, and this has nothing to do with God. And wanting justice for this injustice is not resentment or bitterness. You know, the, the government of New Orleans, the federal government, too, hates poor people. It's extremely racist and classist and sexist. You know, people in certain categories have always been oppressed by the government and by society and cultural influences, too. The same, the very same ones who uphold those governments, usually. You, we have to acknowledge these cultural causes. You can't ignore them because to ignore them is to misdiagnose the problem. And if you want to live in a society where things are getting better over time, which we do, thankfully, a lot of progress has been made in certain areas, but it's been made because people have been continuously pointing out the problems, no matter what was going on in their personal lives, no matter what was, you know, no matter whether or not they had therapy or, uh, you know, read Jordan Peterson's self-help book. So he goes into, like, you need to clean up your life. Then we're getting right into his whole premise here. You know, have you cleaned up your life? Have you cleaned up your life before, you know, saying, you know, governments hate poor people? You're not allowed to do that. You can't do that. How dare you criticize culture and society if your life isn't in perfect order? Now, by the way, this is a very conservative mindset. You see this mindset come out in things like police shootings, for example. They'll be like, well, he was no angel. Trayvon Martin was no angel. He he was, you know, there's pictures of him 
doing things that normal teenagers do and that somehow makes him bad that somehow makes him able to be killed by the police and this happens a lot with black kids who were killed by the police and men and anyone who stands up for anything is going to have their backgrounds thrown into question and it's fallacious it's completely fallacious there's no reason to do it unless it's you know in some way connected to what may have you know causes unless it's relevant in some kind of way and you're actually kind of seeing it right now the whole big outrage lately is about these uh, kids confronting this Native American um, activist named Nathan Phillips. And New York Post just published an article today about, oh, well, he was no angel. You know, he got arrested when he was in his early 20s for alcohol and he broke out of jail, which only makes me like the guy more. I'm sure he's problematic in other ways like I, I don't in any way vouch for this guy but I certainly don't vouch for those little fucking assholes who were racist pieces of shit um, who were at that protest but yeah like guess what yeah I can I can criticize these things without having my life in perfect order the media gets to criticize things without having their shit together I mean that that's like does it make it valid does it make it right I don't fucking know but to say that you can't do it until you have your life in perfect order is some serious bullshit. He goes on to say, you can use your own standards of judgment. You can rely on yourself for guidance. You don't have to adhere to some external arbitrary code of behavior. Although you should not overlook the guidelines of your culture, life is short and you don't have time to figure out everything on your own. The wisdom of the past was hard-earned, and your dead ancestors may have something useful to tell you. So he tries to walk the middle road with that thing. So he says, okay... Which I agree with the first part. Yes, I can use my own standards of judgment to navigate the world. I can pull my shit together. I can say, like, I have these certain standards and values. I want to meet them. I'm going to try harder. Cool. I can rely on myself for guidance. Yes, I can. I've been right about a lot of things, even when I didn't realize I was right about them. Um, I have a pretty good sense of guidance and judgment and all that. You don't have to adhere to some external arbitrary code of behavior. Totally agree, man. Yeah, you mean like the Judeo-Christian heteronormative bullshit culture I was raised in? You're right. I don't adhere to that because I find it to be bullshit after a long time of examining it for, you know, my entire life. But then he tries to have it both ways, but you shouldn't overlook the guidelines of your culture. The guidelines of my culture have caused me and a lot of other people in my life a huge amount of pain a huge amount of suffering and guess what you can criticize it like not all of my suffering came from natural disasters or people being assholes to me a lot of it comes from what things are acceptable to the culture that i live under and the culture that i live under has different standards than i do for what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and we both find each other's standards pretty fucking awful. I can tell you right now, like, I, <laughs> what what I believe in on, in some issues is going to cause people to be very, very upset. And they're going to call me, they're going to say, I'm anti-life and I'm anti-human thriving and all of the things that I think about them. That's it. And then, you know, there's that's just a fact of life. You're going to run into those situations. And I think especially with this kind of political climate, 
you know, the, the political climate's always been really sharply divided, but and I think you're seeing a lot more different types of voices amplified now and a lot more backlash to that. But ultimately, on certain issues, for example, abortion, you have people on both sides who think that the other people on the other side are completely anti-human, anti-life and human thriving and consider them murderers. It's not a topic that you're going to see a lot of crossover with because of people's deeply held convictions about things. And a huge, the majority percentage of people in this country who believe in Judeo-Christian values don't believe that I should exist. You know, yeah, I'm going to have an issue with that. Is my life going to be perfect before I start bitching about it? Hell no. But I don't demand perfection and consistency from my opponents, you know, if they're going to be criticizing my beliefs and shit. That's a kind of a ridiculous standard to have for people. Like, just focus on yourself, man. And the, the thing is, we have, we don't have to, he says, oh, you don't have time to figure everything out on your own. This is such bullshit. We have, <laughs> we had this tool, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, called the internet. And the internet makes it incredibly easy to figure out the cultural baggage holding people back from cleaning up their lives. Maybe challenging those institutions gives someone's life purpose. And having purpose is crucial to cleaning up your life and thriving. People do better when they have a sense of purpose and direction in their lives. That's why, I mean, that's why a lot of people are activists. There's the broader concept of activism as a move to, you know, push forward social change at a faster rate. But then there's the internal motivations for the activist and there's the, you know, it feels good. It gives them a reason to wake up in the morning. And people, I don't completely disagree that like complete nihilism, like anti, you know, I guess anti-meaning nihilism, like it's maybe not great for a lot of people. You know, I think most people in general need some kind of reason to wake up in the morning and some reason to get going. You know, I, I can agree with that, you know, to a degree, but I reject the notion that the a broader sense of nihilism that like nothing has objective inherent meaning other than what you ascribe to it is pretty spot on and I think correct on a factual level, you know, and I but and I agree with him. We should take responsibility for our own lives to the extent that we cause our own problems. But external factors change the ability of people to just clean their lives up. There's some people who face a whole lot more external pressure and problems than other people face. You know, it's it's much harder to pick yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't have any bootstraps. You know, it's harder to get to this level where you can just make your life okay if you've been kicked out of your house when you're 15 or 16 because you're gay. You know, like, it's... We don't all start on the same playing field. And I'm not saying the government should force it to where we all start on the same playing field. That's not the argument I'm making. I mean, it's just a factual statement of some people are going to have it easier than others. Some people have very good reasons to be angry and bitter at the world, but don't harm others. You know, they have other ways of dealing with that. It doesn't cause them to immediately become, you know, murderous savages for no reason or something. And he says... Don't blame capitalism, the radical left, or the iniquity of your enemies. You know, take responsibility for yourself. Have some humility. 
So sometimes it's okay to, you know, sometimes it's okay to blame things that cause problems. I, I don't see why, like, he certainly blames feminists and, um, you know, victim culture and whatever for the decline of Western civilization. He can sit in his ivory tower and bitch about things all day long. I guess he's got his house in perfect order. I mean, I don't know. I've seen some videos that make me question that. But, <laughs> you know, everyone has different coping mechanisms. It's okay to say, like, these people caused my problems and not burden yourself with the shame and guilt over these things that have happened to you. And, you know, this works for different people differently. You know, in, in other ways, you know, this unacknowledged trauma plays out that's very destructive. You know, but there are, it's okay to say there are causes to this, they, that they didn't just arrive out of nowhere, that you're just being bitter and angry and resentment and resentful because, you know, one bad thing happened to you or whatever. And I don't know, like it's... He's saying, don't reorganize the state until you've ordered your own experience. By the way, I wish uh, the people who adhered to, you know, who are followers of his would follow this advice. Because, yeah, it's really not the left's fault that you live in your parents' basement. You know, like, th there are different reasons for different things. And, again, you have to take responsibility for what you can be responsible for. You know, if you're in someone if you're living in your parents basement because you're kind of lazy and lack direction and haven't really you know been challenged a whole lot in life and you're just kind of passively existing and you know maybe you're just kind of a fuck up that's different than living in your parents basement because someone raped you and you're suffering from PTSD or you were kicked out on the streets as a kid and had to figure out ways to make things work. And, you know, like, it, it, this isn't, this is just really bad advice because it's very one-size-fits-all. And it doesn't take into account the differing experiences and the legitimacy of the anger that you're allowed to have if you've been wronged. Guess what? You can blame other things. You can blame the things responsible for your problems. It, you don't have to fully take on this giant burden of being responsible for every single thing that's happened to you. There are reasons for things. And it's not just ideologically based either. It's not as if, you know, people change ideologies or people are constantly shifting with what they believe. And to say that, well, you know, you're not, you don't, you can't tell people what they're, you can't say that society is wronging people until you've fixed your life is bullshit. This whole chapter is bullshit. That's my review of it is bullshit. And he does not have his house in perfect order because no one does. <laughs> like no one has their house in perfect order like if that was required again we'd have no art we'd have no movies we'd have no books we'd have nothing if this was a requirement so it's a stupid rule it's a dumb rule that's right i'm saying it it's dumb i'm not even like gonna concede any of his points in this chapter i take it back I take back agreeing with anything <laughs> i know i agreed with that part about you know 
abusive uh, people who've been abused don't go on to abuse others and yeah that's a that's also a point that a million other people have made and it's just statistically backed up so he doesn't even get he doesn't even get points for that that's just a basic fact okay wow you can acknowledge one basic fact about existence sorry you don't get brownie points for that jordan peterson anyways all right time to get to the part that you've all been waiting for which queer eye episode can i just watch instead so i don't have to read this dumbass chapter well my friends i have a great one for you i want you to go to season one episode eight of queer eye it's called hose before bros and it means a fire hose because he's talking they're talking about a firefighter and this is a great episode you guys will really like it uh jeremy holmes is the person that they're making over he's a fighter firefighter and this is the only job he's ever had he's been searching for acceptance and trying to find his place helping people and he really loves and admires his fellow firefighters and he loves helping people and he is also going to be organizing a conference and wants to represent his fire department well. So his fire chief nominated him because he has no idea about fashion and all that. Um, and the firehouse is also, by the way, a total mess. So instead of making over Jeremy's home in this episode, they end up making over the firehouse because that's kind of his home away from home. Now, his house, Jeremy's house, is not in perfect order. His his workhouse, the firehouse, is a total mess. Like, it's just chaos. A bunch of dudes live there. They don't have a lot of time for cooking and all of that stuff. Um, But he's found a way to still be a really good person and help people and literally save lives as a firefighter. And it gives his life a whole lot of meaning. So already, I mean, he's... His life is probably in, it may not be in perfect order, but, and, you know, this is the only job he's ever had, too. Um, you know, he just seems like kind of an average dude whose meaning comes from being a firefighter. But he has, like, a little bit of self-esteem issues, you know? He's, he's not, and he, he doesn't make a whole lot of effort to dress up for his wife, it seems like. You know, the firehouse is a total mess, uh, all of that. So the Fab Five come in to get his life in perfect order. And the thing is, it didn't need to be in perfect order before he went out to save lives. Which, by the way, professions are sometimes a criticism of the world we live in. So what is what would be someone's motivation for becoming a firefighter? They want to save lives. They want to help people. Maybe they want some recognition for it. Maybe they don't. I don't know, but ultimately they see that the world is difficult and it causes these unexplained natural disasters that destroy lives and they want to fix it. They want to provide the solution to that problem. And you don't need to be perfect to do that. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, but yeah, like this is a guy he wear he wear he doesn't dress up for his wife. He wears Crocs and cargo pants, and uh, Tan actually calls the Crocs the giving up on giving up on life shoes. <laughs> and 
And, uh, you know, Jeremy has some anxiety about being able to raise enough money to train more firefighters through this conference. And Tan makes a good point that he'll command more respect and raise more money if he dresses the part. You know, if he gets his life in order a little bit. His fashion life. <laughs> but also the firehouse. So Bobby ends up redesigning the firehouse and making it more in order and uh, so that these guys can have a place to kind of come back come back to or have a place to relax before they go out into the world and clean it up. And, uh, but Jeremy's a little, you know, a little uncomfortable, a little insecure with his body, but he immediately, you know, steps up. This is a very motivating episode. You know, he, he feels very loved and accepted by his firefighter family and wants to keep trying harder to help people. So, but he also wants to expand that urge to help people to himself and have better self-esteem. That's awesome. You know, he's done like the hard work here of finding a purpose in life, which is saving lives. And that gives him a whole lot of, you know, meaning and drive. And, it also allows him to maybe challenge himself in other ways, kind of get out of his comfort zone. One of the things he does is he uh, takes dance lessons and the other firefighters take dance lessons with him. It's a really cute, oh my gosh, it's such a great episode. Uh, so yeah, he, he gets out of his comfort zone. He starts working on his self-esteem, you know. And what I like about the dance lesson episode is the, the firefighters are challenging cultural assumptions about masculinity when they take these dance lessons and they even dance with other men because you can challenge assumptions about whatever it is society etc and set your house in order it doesn't have to be like this binary thing of like well you have to do this until you can do before you can do this that's ridiculous you know like i mean and it gets really funny karamo gets in there and like starts teaching them like super sexy moves and stuff and the guys are getting all into it and like getting more you know uninhibited and that is a huge what you know firefighters are in a very typically masculine role like you would maybe not expect to see a firefighter twerking on the ground <laughs> or something <laughs> as what happens in this episode and i think it was wonderful because you could tell that at first uh, Jeremy and the other guys were very uncomfortable, but they all kind of loosened up and kind of like got out of their own skin. And that's great. Like, that's a super positive thing to do. And, you know, it is it is challenging cultural assumptions about what they should do and what they should be and what they should like in life. You know, it's okay to be a firefighter, super masculine firefighter and know how to twerk or partner dance or pole dance or any other type of dance like it you know it's not a one or the other kind of world mr peterson so and then i love the part where jonathan treats them to a spa day again challenging cultural assumptions about masculinity while maybe not having your house completely in order but it's effective it worked and what it allowed them to do was get their house in perfect order because when you have an extremely stressful job, you do have to take time out of it to do self-care. So Jonathan te teaches them about self-care. And Anthony talks to them about their families and other productive ways to de-stress, you know, after a long day. Self-care is something that you don't get to see um, a lot. You don't see a whole lot of self-care advice directed towards men. And you do see high rates of... Um, 
for example, suicide. Um, you know, you see higher rates of deaths. And those are caused by a lot of things. But specifically when it comes to suicide, we do live in a culture that devalues the emotional experiences of men or the emotional reactions of men. And, like you know, they say you have to kind of the implication, the pressure is for men to be stoic and unfeeling and not be in touch with their emotions. And that causes heart attacks, you know, and that causes them to be depressed and have anxiety and self-harm, you know, and, and even commit suicide because there's not an outlet for that stress that they're feeling. So this is a great episode. He, they redo everything. They get his life. They help him get his life in order. You know, because it was a little, it was chaotic before, but he was still going out there. He was still criticizing the world. He was still helping people. You know, even the recreation of the firehouse. It's another de-stressing technique. That's another self-care thing. You need a safe place to come home to or come back to. It's relieving. Yeah, by the end of it, again, with every episode, because that's... Except for with one episode, which I don't, I don't even know if... <laughs> I still have to do a little bit. Uh, there's only one episode of the Queer Eye Seasons that I don't like. And maybe I could do a whole podcast on that one, because I don't think it's going to line up with one of these chapters. But uh, I might get to do a whole rant about that. But at the end of every episode, the men are more confident and the women too because sometimes they make over women are more confident uh, even the fire chief is really grateful and proud like he's saying he's proud to know the fab five and you know he's proud that, that his men were taught self-care and they end up raising money for the fundraiser and dancing and it was totally successful i mean he even at the end jeremy says he loves the fab five which is so sweet like it's a very heartwarming episode because uh, all of them are super heartwarming. But it's great. These firefighters break down cultural expectations and barriers heavily in this episode, and it teaches a lesson that you can challenge social norms while also getting your house in perfect order, which is much better advice than set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. So that's my episode on this chapter. I hope you all enjoyed it. You can follow me on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, also on Patreon. Yeah, so we'll be tackling the next chapter in the next episode, which is Pursue What is Meaningful, Not What is Expedient. Huh. I wonder how that one's going to go. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.